You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK principal and fellow football fan David Leach. David, um, um, through your bleary eyes and things like that from watching too much football, um, another interesting week and a good interview coming up this week. Uh, absolutely. We've got a, a great guest this week, uh, a very experienced guest of the electricity market in Australia, which we'll get to in a moment. And I think also, uh, you know, it's at the end of the year, that's the culmination and we've had some new policies announced in the energy sector. Yeah, well, a bunch of new policies, both at home and abroad. We touched on the capacity markets last week. And of course, we've had the proposed price caps for gas and um, and coal as well. And overseas, we've seen the introduction of a carbon border tax at the EU, as predicted by this very podcast in your excellent interview a few weeks ago, um, David. And we'll get to all of that at the end of this podcast. But I think first... We should um, feature our interview with Mirren York. She is the Head of System Design at the Australian Energy Market Operator and in that role is responsible not just for the Integrated System Plan, um, the next um, edition of that, but also the uh, engineering for 100% renewables. In fact, she's the lead author of the latest report, uh, the uh, engineering roadmap for 100% renewables. And David and I talked to Mirren York uh, just a few days ago. And this is what she had to say. Mirren York, uh, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thanks for having me, Giles. And um, yes, and, and, and congratulations on your new role as, um, or your recent role, I guess it is, as Head of System Design, which encompasses uh, um, quite a broad spectrum of things. It's, um, it's the uh, governance or the leadership of the Integrated System Plan, um, more recently, it's been the mapping out of this 100% renewables engineering or the engineering roadmap for 100% renewables, which I guess is going to be the main topic of conversation and also leading the reform of the connections process too. So it's a, it's a fairly big job, isn't it? Yes, it's one that I uh, am very much enjoying. I think, you know, having the opportunity to help with the transition to renewables is both um, uh, an honour. It's very exciting. Um, it's challenging, but it's something that I'm very much looking forward to being able to add some value to uh, because it's just so important, you know, to make sure that we get a power system that transitions to renewables that's both reliable, secure, but also affordable uh, and can be delivered to keep the lights on and the economy running uh, is just a, an enormous privilege to be part of. Well, keeping the lights on, I guess, is the uh, topic du jour. I mean, there's so many people out there saying, well, you can't run a modern economy on wind and solar um, or even wind, solar and storage. It's just not going to work. Your engineering, my roadmap is designed to um, show how that can be done. So basically, can we just actually just make this absolutely clear then? Can we run the Australian grid on wind and solar only? Well, Giles, as you've just pointed out, um what the engineering roadmap to 100% renewables is about is 
working out the engineering to do exactly that. Um, and it won't be just wind and solar. There'll be other forms of renewable and storage. So when we think about um, AEMO's role in terms of operating the grid uh, and making sure that the power system is there to deliver to the needs of Australian electricity consumers. You know, we work with industry and governments and stakeholders to make sure that we can operate the grid. And then my part in that is really making sure that we're thinking that one to 30 years ahead and how do we plan the system so that we can then effectively operate it in real time, you know, five minute by five minute, second by second, um, millisecond by millisecond to deliver that all important electricity for consumers. And so thinking about that forecasting and planning role, we know there's going to be a change. Coal generation is going to reach its end of life or end of economic uh, arrangements and there's uh, emissions reductions, targets. And so, you know, we've got to have a plan to make sure that we understand how the system can be operated. And we talk about those four things that need to be delivered uh, low-cost renewable energy, which is, to your point, wind and solar, but also hydro resources. Uh, so that will be an important part of that mix of renewables. We know we need firming technology, and that will be everything from pumped hydro to batteries, uh, potentially um, some gas generation to smooth out those peaks and, and fill in the gaps uh, and the variability uh, from that wind and solar variable renewable energy. We need the transmission to connect it up and, and create the diversity and to share that around amongst our geography, our quite large geography that we have here in Australia. And then the final thing, which is probably what the actual engineering roadmap is uh, mainly centred on, is all of that technical capability stuff that comes, uh, you know, that we need to have so that the engineering and technical side enables all that previous activity in terms of the renewable energy, the firming technology and the transmission to work together uh, entirely on renewable energy, which will be a mix of hydro mm. as well as the wind and solar. You're kind of moving from one system which has been based largely around centralised spinning machines and that has a certain sort of quality of power to it and you're sort of shifting now towards, as you said, wind and solar and battery storage, maybe some hydro in the background there, but predominantly inverter-based technologies. So you're changing a system, but it strikes me that one of the challenges must be to actually sort of manage that system because you're sort of kind of switching in that transition period, you're kind of switching from one to another and then back again. Is, is, is that a big complexity? I would imagine if you were sort of starting to do the grid all over and starting over, you'd probably just focus on inverter-based technologies and whatever you need to go with that, but you've actually got to switch from one to the other and keep the lights on at the same time. Yes. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, is, 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 is that the complexity? <laughs> no, in all seriousness, in all seriousness, you're right. Um, it is a very different uh, engineering challenge, um, which is, you know, why we need, you know, our really competent group of power system engineers, but also other people, you know, to really help with that. And it's not just people at AEMO. Um, this is only going to be solved by all the different um, uh, parts of the, the huge engineering marvel that is the electricity power system uh, working together to make sure that we can deliver uh, all of the engineering thinking and 
um, changes that are needed to do exactly what you've just said, to operate a hybrid system. And it's not just, you know, it's largely synchronous now and in, I don't know, 20 or 30 years' time, it's going to be largely uh, inverter-based. We're actually anticipating that there will be, it's always going to be a hybrid, so there will always be some synchronous plant. And so we need to make sure that we're thinking about it in that way, that it's both synchronous and asynchronous plant that works together. And we also know that the mix of what will generate uh, the electricity that's required uh, within the cycle of a day um, will vary. So at some parts of the day, it'll be a higher level of synchronous plant and less um, asynchronous plant. So particularly solar um, won't be running at night. Uh, and then at other parts of the day, it will be very high levels of inverter-based resources in asynchronous plant um, and lower levels of synchronous plant. And we're actually expecting to see that um, change throughout the day on a daily cycle. So, yeah, it's the exciting challenge that hopefully a lot of uh, good quality engineers out there are all going to come and help <laughs> us solve. And it's it's really, Meryn, uh, David Leach here, more, more than uh, it's happening quite quickly as, as the roadmap points out, 100% instantaneous penetration with perhaps within uh, three or four years and, you know, the uh, state targets imply over 80% essentially of inverter-based uh, resources for the bulk energy by 2030, which is only eight years away. Uh, and on, on AEMO's own ISP, it gets to 100% by pretty much 2035. So it, it's a fairly fast transition. And uh, the, the, the main, that implies, doesn't it, a, a very big role, more or less, for, 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 for grid-forming inverters or virtual synchronous machines or something. Uh, you know, um, what's your thoughts about the the size of the role that they can play in controlling a largely inverter-based grid? Well, we think grid-forming inverters have great potential, um, but we also need to do the work to understand what they can actually do. So it's absolutely fantastic that these things are starting to be connected to the power system. Uh, and so that enables us to you know, really check them out to really understand what they can do across the range of services that they may be able to provide. So whether it's um, smart inverters providing very fast frequency response, whether it's, um, to just use that term, synthetic inertia, um, or whether it's um, different um, services that we need uh, to be able to make sure that the grid is working. So the quality of what they provide and the magnitude of what they provide relative to the power system, it's great to be able to be start testing that against when they're on small amounts and we can really lean in to understand what they're doing, how they're behaving, how predictable they are, uh, what are the services that they're able to provide and that will build, we're expecting that will build over time. So we think that's a huge potential and we're looking forward to more of those connecting to the power system so that we can continue to learn how they behave and what their suitability is to providing, um, you know, what level of service that's required that can be provided. So if you think about something like inertia, um, it's being provided by synchronous plant and that's a combination of what I would describe as mechanical inertia just because of the size of the 
you know, the coal plants and the whole generator and turbine that's behind that, um, that's what we're used to operating. And what we need to make sure is that we understand what the distinction is between mechanical inertia that we're relying on to provide that synchronising torque uh, and hold the power system together from an AC point of view and whether grid-forming inverters can provide some of that, all of it, um, a di- it, whether that's a different service. And so these are the things that we're really learning about these new types of technologies that we're going to need to take into account in as we think about this shift on a daily cycle from some more synchronous, less inverter-based to more inverter-based, less synchronous. Uh, and what is the balance of that? So, yeah, so it's great not, it's, that they're it coming really on the inertia. system. It, it isn't really inertia that uh, that's the the key variable, is it? I mean, inertia is a way of maintaining frequency. Uh, you'll have to excuse me. I'm just a, a financial analyst, and and I'm always misunderstanding this stuff. But am I wrong to say that inertia's basic role is to, is to stabilise frequency in, in over a given time frame? Look, that's part of it. I think um, when we talk about inertia, we certainly talk about a rate of change of frequency, but the inertia that we currently have in the system uh, is a combination. It's really mechanical inertia. And in thinking about can you 100% replace that with, you know, um, non-mechanical inertia, just to use that term, we don't know the answer to that yet. We need to learn about that. We need to make sure that we're thinking about the extent and analysing what it is providing and making sure that when we're, while we model that, that we actually also calibrate those models against what the real system is doing. Because a model is just a model. It, it doesn't necessarily capture 100% of everything that's out there in the real power system. And so making sure that we can match what we're seeing in our modeling with what's actually going on on the real power system, that's a practice that engineers have used like forever. Uh, in terms of the power system. And as we get these large changes, we need to make sure that our modelling is reflective of what the real power system is. And so starting to see those inverter-based um, plant coming on and what it's doing and um, checking how that's matching our models will be an important step in the process to understand to what extent that can provide a partial or full or or whatever level of substitute for what we currently use as mechanical inertia on the system. Sure. But, I mean, uh, as from what I... Maybe I've been talking to Stephen Sproul too much, uh, but, but I, I can't actually see, in theory, why it won't work because there seems to be the right mathematical equivalence. But uh, I'm not even very good at arithmetic, so I don't know why I said that. Uh, but can I... <laughs> Look, and I'm not saying it can't, so don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm definitely not saying it can't, but what I'm saying is let's make sure that we understand and we're uh, using our modelling and our real power system monitoring to make sure that we understand whether it fully can before we go ahead and just automatically rely on it. So let's not rely on the maths. Let's actually rely on um, real-time comparison of what's what's really happening with what our modeling is is showing and making sure that we understand whether it's the same whether it's different and that we're taking this in a stepwise approach uh, so that we're not putting the power system at risk um, before we fully understand what's going on 
Sure. And I think that I'll hand back to Giles in just a tick. And I think that's one of the points of the engineering framework that has this uh, standard hold point approach. Uh, but I just, while I finish on my little bit on grid forming inverters, I mean, in a largely inverter based grid, and that is what we're going to have, and pretty quickly, as far as I can see, what is the alternative? You can't uh, do, do everything else with just synchronous condensers, can you? Well, again, these are the things that we need to work out as we go along. So while it's going to be relatively quick, it's not instantaneous. So we will have time to make sure that we understand what's going on as we move forward. Um, and really what we're trying to do with the engineering roadmap is map out ahead of time what are the things that we need to do to make sure by the time we get there, We've already studied these things and we've got a, like a, a test plan to, to say, well, let's, let's go to this next point, um, with this level of inverter based resources or this, uh, reduction in synchronous plant. And let's make sure that what we're, um, modeling from a engineering point of view on our computer systems is actually matched to what's going on on the real system in that configuration. And once we're confident that our modelling reflects the real world, you know, then we can go to the next step. And, and that's, that's the engineering method, really, uh, is, is, you know, you don't just leap to a di completely different solution relying on it purely on modelling. Um, but that is, it really needs to make sure you're building up the knowledge and capability over time. So it seems to me then there's sort of two things that um, that need to be done here. There's, is is one just like sort of a, a systems protocol and a systems management thing and understanding how the how this sort of process and this system is actually sort of different and getting used to the technologies. But if 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 I understand the road that right, you're actually going to need a fair bit more hardware um, to actually be able to reach that level of 100% wind and solar by. Um, by 2025, uh, I think Daniel Westerman, the CEO of um, AEMO, has said on many occasions there's going to be enough wind and solar in the system to be able to sort of, you know, match demand. Now, he's indicated pretty firmly, I think the roadmap says this as well, that, well, just because you've got enough wind and solar to, to match all the demand at one particular point doesn't mean that that's going to be, happen or be allowed to happen. Um, you want to make sure that there's enough to deal with any variations and that there's other plant that can come back online in the evening, maybe when the sun goes down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it seems you, the roadmap talks also about the need for sort of, you know, the, the equivalent of 40 synchronous condensers, uh, which could be battery storage, could be battery inverters, and, you know, um, grid forming inverters. That sounds like a lot of hardware that needs to be put into the grid before we actually reach that moment where we can go, oh, look, 100%, 100% renewables. Is, is all that needed for that first half hour or is that all, or will, will, will much of that 40, the equivalent of 40 synchronous condensers be required for those hours and days, which are also talked about that will inevitably follow? Yeah, no, we're not necessarily expecting the 40 synchronous condensers to be in place by the time that the, um, the first level of capacity that could exist, um, you know, could be delivering that. So we're not, certainly not suggesting, uh, 40 synchronous condensers are required before we get to the capability for 100% renewables. And where, even if we have the capability, it will be the market that determines whether that is what's dispatched to deliver demand, not 
the fact that it exists. So, right. so we're just saying. So if there's negative, so the, so, sorry to interrupt, but if there's negative prices, then some um, some wind and um, solar farms may withdraw, as I think they actually did in Western Australia just a couple of months ago. Theoretically, yeah, the right. availability was 100%, but you had wind and solar farms putting themselves out of the market. So in the end, I think it was probably just maybe 80% or something like that. Yeah, that's right. So where... So we're just what we're trying to do with the engineering roadmap is to is to remove any barriers to a hundred percent getting delivered that are there from a technical and engineering point of view. Um, that doesn't mean there won't be reasons in the market or in the way in which um, dispatch operates that mean that that doesn't get dispatched to, to exactly the point you made. Um, but what we're wanting to do is say, let's. Let's make sure we know what we've got to do from an engineering and technical point of view so that in the event that the market systems wanted to dispatch that and people didn't withdraw for negative prices or whatever else reason they might um, not actually get dispatched, that it's not the technical and engineering that's stopping that happening if that's what the market wants to dispatch. That's really our focus to say let's not have the technical engineering side be a barrier to that happening and delivering those outcomes uh, in the market. So that's around what do we need from a system security point of view? How do we make sure the system's operable and that the control room, for example, can see what they need to see? And then, of course, having enough uh, and in the right um, capability uh, is, is obviously also required. So how far, I mean, in, 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 the, um, in, in the media release that accompanied the report, it talked about this being, and I think in the report itself actually, it talked about this being unprecedented, which it certainly is around the world, you know, a grid of this size and elongated the way it is to, you know, to reach 100% renewables, largely wind and solar, um, has never been done before. Exactly how far ahead are we of the rest of the world in sort of reaching this level? And just how crazy do some of the other grid operators think that Australia is? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, certainly when we look at something like DR, um, there is you know, no question that we're leading the world in terms of the penetration of um, consumer resources or, or, dis or resources that are located in the distribution networks in terms of um, supplying uh, demand uh, into the grid. And, and so we've seen that, that that's now becoming, you know, the biggest power station um, and that's you know that ha brings with it genuine engineering and operability uh, differences which we need to be able to manage just to use that as an example of one of the things that you know we're trying to work with so having that predictable having it um, able to be um, understood the way in which it's going to operate through, you know, all kinds of little perturbations that happen on the power system all the time, the kinds of disturbances that can happen, you know, with storms or, you know, other things that happen on the power system on a very regular basis, you know, making sure that the way in which that enormous resource that's out there uh, in terms of solar rooftops or batteries or, in the future, electric vehicles, which is, you know, going to be a really important part of delivering uh, the 100% renewables, making sure that we understand how that's going to behave and how it's going to interact with the rest of the power system, the grid-scale um, power stations, solar and wind farms and hydro, that's going to exist and, and the interconnected power system 
is going to be a really important aspect. And so we are leading the world. We've got higher penetrations than anywhere else. We've, to your point, we've got a big geography and small uh, population, which means small load makes a power system inherently less stable uh, because of that than, you know, some of the larger populated, less geographically dispersed countries like the UK or or, or the north of the US mm. um, system. So, you know, all these things need to be taken into account in the way in which we think about the technical and engineering solutions. And that's why we're taking this careful engineering approach of let's move forward in stages. Let's make sure we've got this roadmap for what we need to do and that everybody can see that. They can all participate in it and they can all help because that's the way that we'll get there uh, to make sure this isn't a barrier to operating at 100% renewables. So, so Merrin, um, uh, it is interesting, and I guess it's lucky we've got South Australia, uh, with all due respect to South Australians, as a kind of sandbox to, to, you know, that sort of automatically tests all this stuff for us uh, as we go along. Uh, but leaving that not really humorous comment aside... One of the other things that's mentioned in the roadmap is that the, is the ability to actually connect all the variable renewable energy that's going to be developed. And, you know, perhaps the biggest, you know, KPI I think about for AEMO is can it actually double the rate of uh, connections which is going to be required under the various state uh, plans. Uh, and I wondered if you could, from AEMO's perspective, because I've heard a lot about what generators say and we've got the REZs and things, uh, what AEMO is doing to actually improve the, I guess, uh, PSCAD modelling uh, results and avoid having to, you know, change the rules after after a, a, a GPS standard's been been already um, uh, sent out to a generator, and just generally to speed up the whole connection process. Yeah, look, I'm really glad you asked that because we've been doing a heap of work in this space. Uh, there's more to do, no question. Um, but it is something that I've been very focused on and AEMO has been very focused on. Uh, and what I really point to is not just work that we're doing internally, but also the work that we're doing through the Clean Energy Council uh, with a bunch of other participants. So for the last few years, and this started before I joined AEMO, um, and I'm really pleased to lean into it now, um, I have joined AEMO, is really trying to look critically at the whole connection process what has been the impediments and what are the things that we can really improve. So if I look at what's been happening in terms of connections, and I'm just going to use a metric that we use, which is when people reach registration, which is just one particular point in the connection process, uh, but it allows us a consistent approach. So two years ago in 20, uh, 2020, we did we connected, oops, sorry, two gigawatts were connected through the registration process. 2021, it was three gigawatts, 2022, it was nearly four gigawatts connected through the registration process. This year, we're forecasting to do a little bit over four. And what we need, know we need to do based on the ISP step change scenario is to be able to register on average for the next 10 years, four and a half gigawatts, and then stepping up to somewhere around seven gigawatts for the next uh, about 15 years out to 2050. So I think we're progressing on the right path. We also know that the projects will get larger. So the megawatts that they connect will get larger, uh, but the power system will get more complex as well. 
So we're very mindful of making sure that we have a continuous improvement approach to the connection process so that we can continue to step up and we're monitoring that. And we're continuing to work with the Clean Energy Council and their members through the Connection Reform Initiative to make sure that we are very mindful of what's working and what's not and that we have an open and constructive dialogue with the developers who we, we see as our customers uh, in this process to make sure that we're aware of the things that are happening uh, and what are the improvement opportunities. Um, I think we also have, uh, we, we have improved. So certainly when we get feedback from those developers through that process, um, the level of angst and the level of um, mismatch in terms of understanding what's actually happening in the process and what are the timeframes that they're expecting and we can deliver, um, the mismatch in that has been reduced. And so if we look in the last um, 12 to 18 months, we've connect connected uh, the Victorian Big Battery, which, which was 300 megawatts, Australia's largest currently, largest battery. Uh, we've connected the... Uh, Western Downs Green Power Hub, 400 megawatt solar farm in Western Queensland. We connected the Stockyard Hill Wind Farm, which is 500 megawatts. Uh, and more recently, uh, we eventually. also worked with, well, they got through their connection. And more recently, we also connected a hybrid facility, the um, power up the, the Port Augusta Renewable Energy Park with Iberdrola. And that had some challenges along the way as well. But we worked through it constructively with the Iberdrola team uh, and with... Um, Electronet, who was the TNSP. And so it's, it's really by all of us working together and having a learning and growth mindset that we can actually start to improve these processes and have that common understanding and share what works and what doesn't across the community of people who are trying to connect and also look to sure. improve our processes. So, and uh, I guess my second question on that is that now we're moving to very much, I think, to an REZ uh, um, approach and uh, Arana in New South Wales is the f first renewable energy zone and my understanding is that all uh, and uh, you can correct me because again it's a layman talking that all the generators have to meet the REZ sort of New South Wales standard first which is relatively tough and then they're going to kind of have a, a batch process to from an AEMO's point of view and I guess my question firstly am I describing it correct roughly correctly and secondly there's a question mark of whether that'll work better or worse or whether the whole thing won't move at the speed of the, you know, least, uh, um, the slowest chip sort of thing and, and you'll end up actually with a worse outcome than a better outcome. Well, what I would probably say is um, renewable energy zones, we already have a lot of what are classified as renewable energy zones in the ISP. I think the central Arana... Uh, res under the New South Wales framework is a particular um, form, if you like, of renewable energy zone that is being delivered in a different way to what could be classified as renewable energy zones all over the, the NEM, really. Um, so, you know, Victoria's got six, Queensland's got its three with sub-elements of their reses. So lots of people talk about reses and it's a, a term that's used in lots of different ways. Um, but what what... Certainly, irrespective of whether it's in the central west Arana res under the New South Wales arrangement or whether it's general connection, you know, what we're trying to do is have a streamlined connection process 
and have transparency and a good understanding across all the parties that are involved as to what has to happen and what the timeframes for those things are. And that's certainly one of the things that we find um, really helps developers and us to be on the same page. Um, some of the improvements that we've identified through the Connections Reform Initiative, which we continue to trial, is to really have a good dialogue pre-application um, so that the developer and us are on the same page about what we're expecting their OEM to deliver, what we're expecting the, the developer to deliver, what studies will need to be done, what they can do on their side, what will be done by AEMO uh, on the on through the onboarding and connections team and how that all fits together and what is the sequence of things that need to happen to get them through the various steps in the connection process. And if we all have an open dialogue in a constructive way and we've got the right technical capabilities feeding in, as well as, you know, they've all got their commercial and other issues that they, um, you know, need to deal with between whoever they're, you know, whether they're an off-take or whatever, as long as we're all on the same page about these are the technical things and take that into account when you're developing your other arrangements, that's, that's, that transparency we find um, really helps everybody to make sure that they understand how they can take that into account in the other things that sit around connection and that will apply whether it's in a renewable energy zone or just generally connecting anywhere in the network. I'm just wondering, uh, Merrin, if we can maybe finish off um, with a question about the ISP. Um, you're also in charge of that. And um, uh, the last ISP was finalised just six months ago and you're already working on the next version, which will um, be finalised in a couple of years' time. And one of the important parts of that work is to work out what sort of scenarios that you're going to be playing with. And... Um, uh, step change, which is a remarkably quick transition to 82% renewables, has already been um, sort of uh, actually just got a couple of synchronous machines just sort of flying overhead. Um, apologies for that. Um, I'm sure they're very thankful that they are still spinning. Um, just with the scenario planning, step change, 82% renewables by 2030, it just seems, you know, a re remarkable pace of transition. But many people think it will go faster than that and will need, go, need to go faster than that. I think even step change is not quite 1.5 degrees or 1.7 degrees. Previously, you'd been talking about a hydrogen superpower um, or hydrogen export superpower scenario. Um, I, I suspect that the hydrogen export expectations has possibly been sort of, you know, dampened a little bit when people sort of realise about the transport costs. So how are you sort of thinking in terms of scenarios and the way they might sort of shape up in the next round? And I know there's still consultations to go, so you probably don't want to lock yourself in, but if you can just give us a bit of a flavour of the way that you're approaching this. Yeah, uh, happy to talk about the um, ISP because the ISP also guides, you know, how we think about the engineering roadmap to 100% renewables because uh, the um, step change scenario is what guides, well, how quickly will that happen? And therefore, how do we make sure we've got that engineering uh, input to make sure that we understand what it will take to get there and, and how we might go about that in conjunction with everyone else? So um, in, in terms of the scenarios, we are currently getting ready to uh, put out for consultation our draft inputs, assumptions and scenarios report. So that will actually be published next Friday. 
uh, and on the 16th of December, and that will be open for consultation. We'll be running a webinar in um, February uh, in advance of the close of submissions uh, so that people can have an opportunity to ask the team questions uh, after they've read it. Um, I'm sure it'll be some pe people's Christmas reading, but um, not everybody's probably. Uh, so trying to make sure that we use a range of scenarios. So the scenario basis is really to make sure we have that robust plan that comes out uh, from what is the optimal development path um, that fits within the range of scenarios that can be pictured. So whether it's pushing even further to a, a one-and-a-half degree outlook, whether it's step change, which is kind of in that less than two degrees C uh, temperature rise, or whether it's even, um, you know, accounting for there may be some reasons why that doesn't pay out. So the scenario basis is really to help us get that robust plan uh, and then to understand what are all the things that need to happen if you want to get to uh, the less than two degrees C in this uh, at, through the electricity sector, what do you need to do? And so the ISP really fits with some of the other planning tools. The ISP is that long-term plan of what do you need to do? And then when we publish something like um, the ESU, uh, the Electricity Statement of Opportunities, which is really a reliability assessment, we're saying, well, this is what's actually happening. So this is what's committed. This is what we know about coal closures. This is what's anticipated, so on its way to commitment. And if you, if you only take that into account, you get this outlook. So you really need to look at the two things together uh, and say, this is what you have to do if you want to get to this scenario outcome. This is what's actually happening. And through the two documents, it gives you a good view of what the gap is and therefore what do developers need to bring forward? What is the transmission that needs to be delivered? And all importantly, what is that engineering work that needs to get done so that if we do get all of that renewable generation built and installed and working then and connected to the grid uh, through all of the other improvement activities, that there's no barriers from a technical and engineering point of view that would enable that to run on the power system. But we can still keep the lights on, deliver reliability, security of supply, and that affordable outcome for consumers over the long run. So the things all go together, um, and the scenarios that we'll use will be slightly adjusted from what they were last time because things have moved on, we've got new things we need to consider, um, and that'll all be coming out next week for consultation, which is... Super. It's great to be on the next cycle of the ISP. It's, it's a big piece of work, but it's so informative to help us do our other work uh, that we need to do to make sure we can do the transition. I think the last ISP was, uh, was, was you know, uh, perhaps the most significant document, single document ever produced in the history of electricity because so much change has, has, has followed from it. Uh, really, it's uh, uh, as much as anything from the acceptance of the ISP as as um, as anything else. I, I, my final question is is coming back to the distributed energy side of things, and you know it's a sort of complicated because distributed energy is not in the market per se. The consumers don't really care about the price; it just generates or doesn't generate. But it's also offers, you know, in my a humble science fiction view there's this opportunity to have a far more distributed uh, grid you know using let's be honest grid forming inverters and, and even households like a household can isolate itself from the grid you know if it wants to and there's no real reason why a street can't and so it seems to me 
that the grid could be far more secure and the whole network topo topology uh, could 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 be changed, you know, if networks were more integrated uh, distribution system into the overall generation rather than just looking at it as generation and transmission. So this is a very big question. I'm not really, I just wondered, you know, if you had any uh, brief thoughts about such a silly idea. Oh, no, look, I think distributed energy resources and, and consumer energy resources are absolutely critical to the transition. And rather than disconnecting, I mean, I think they are going to be an integral part of how we get to 100% renewables. I mean, we, um, in the step change scenario in the ISP, the 2022 ISP, uh, we, the um, input assumption, so this is an input assumption, this is not to say um, there's, you know, all of the, the things that will make this happen, but the input assumption is a five-fold increase in distributed solar PV from what we currently have at 15 gigawatts to nearly 70 gigawatts by 2050. So we need to make use of that 70 gigawatts to help to deliver that low-cost energy to the power system as a whole, not just this, you know, this household or this street supplying themselves, but actually be an integral part of the overall power system. Now, obviously, to do that, we also need to have the predictability visibility and understand how that enormous power how that enormous power station is going to interact with the rest of the power system and all of the transmission grid connected power stations that will also be delivering electricity into the grid so our grid scale will increase to 140 gigawatts by 2050 under the step change scenario but this 70 gigawatts of distributed solar is going to be a really key resource that we need to be able to make use of. And so that is one of the things that we want to explore um, going forward is how do we make sure that that is able to deliver and contribute to the overall power system? And um, how do we help people? You know, there's going to be, say, 10 million. There's currently 3 million households. There's going to be 10 million by the time we get to 70 gigawatts. How do we make sure those people understand how they can help the whole power system work and help that least cost delivery of the 100% renewables? So that's super important. Sure, there's a social side and, and the generation side. There's a social and the generation, but I'm interested in, in the network topology side, the, the, you know, the system control side. And it seems to me that the household system when you add in grid forming inverters at the local at the street and suburban you know zone substation level could actually result in theory in a far more distributed and secure grid and uh that, that seems to be something that is um, i must be wrong because no one else seems to be thinking about that well as i said before i think you know what i see is that that can all contribute back up to the whole power system so it it's it's in the what we need is a lot of different things because different um, you know, re the resource being coming from solar and wind, w when it's cloudy in, uh, you know, over most of Queensland, we want it to be sunny and blowing somewhere else. And we need ways that we can actually make the use of those diverse resources. So, you know, making sure that it's all part of an integrated system and that can all work together. I think we're saying the same thing, but maybe I'm misunderstanding what it is that that you're saying, or I'm not sounding like I'm saying the same uh, thing. It, 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 not it, sure. 
No, we not go, not go again. Back around I, uh, that again? But, but, uh, for me, uh, Merrin, I appreciate you uh, taking the time very much to explain all, all, all this to us and to our listeners, and I would like to say thank you. And I'd like to say thank you to um, Merrin York for joining the Energy Insiders podcast, and uh, we look forward to interest with great interest um, of the upcoming documents, the um, the um, ISP planning and. Um, and the next stage in this um, wonderful engineering task of reaching 100% renewable. So um, we'll look forward to having you back at, on the podcast at some time in the future. And thanks once again for, for joining us. Well, I hope that's been of great interest to your listeners and I'm happy to, to have been here and had the opportunity to talk about our roadmap to 100% renewables. Thank you very much for having me. And that was Amira York, the Head of System Design from the Australian Energy Market Operator. David, um, interesting stuff. Um, fascinating to see what sort of scenarios we will see emerge in the um, next edition of the Integrated System Plan. But of course, however much you plan for the engineering part of it, however much you might think that you can set an 82% renewable energy target or have it as a modelling, what we're seeing from all these other policy decisions around the place is that Australia is very much a client of international developments, both in policy and geopolitics. Uh, well, we, you know, we're an open economy. Uh, we should greatly fear all this moves to protectionism uh, that uh, and trade barriers in some ways that have been put up all around the world because no matter whether it's fossil fuel or whatever else we wish to ex export and import, uh, we are not a big enough market to do it all on our own and we need the global markets for our prosperity. So I worry about the tightening up of the political scene, but we're not going to solve that on this podcast. One of the things that struck me in that interview and previously and that Mark Byrne wrote an article about today, in a sense, on Renew Economy, uh, is that the networks, which are probably still the biggest source of value, uh, the biggest amount of assets, are not actually considered in the electricity system at all trying to talk about how the grid could be made more reliable by making the individual components of the distribution network to have their own batteries and little grids or whatever they are. Uh, just, you know, it doesn't even seem to register as a concept. Networks are, are not considered. They're just, we have rooftop solar, uh, uh, but the location of where it is doesn't really matter. Uh, and yet we have all this locational marginal pricing for big generators. So I just think myself that um, we can still develop the overall concept of the market a lot more. Indeed, David. In fact, um, not just Mark Burns' article about the sun tax and what the networks are proposing, but also Luke Osborne um, from uh, Stride Energy wrote a really interesting um, opinion piece earlier this week for a new economy about um, this idea of a black spot program. So um, just um, as, a, as a simpler sort of just more you know, thinking exactly the same thing about the existing networks and using them as assets of just sort of unblocking these sort of congested lines and, you know, just sort of at least a shift against um, locational margining pricing, which has been um, very controversial. Talking of open markets, David, now you are a fan of the markets. You must be looking at these proposed price caps for both um, gas and coal um, with a certain grimace. I don't actually think the coal the coal one is not really attracting a lot of attention 
I think the biggest thing in in the price because firstly the the coal price is difficult to work out exactly what it means in terms of the energy price. There are almost endless specifications for coal in terms of the number of gigajoules of energy per ton, uh, and the most public one is the one that we always seize on, which is what's called the 6300 kcal. Uh, uh, and that's we look at that because it's got a futures market and is quoted very regularly. Uh, but in fact, only really the coal from that, which is the very top quality, mostly goes to Japan. And there's not much growth in Japan, whatever else is going on in there. Most of the coal that is sold, and particularly the coal that's sold to the domestic markets in Australia, is of a lower specification. And the price for that is much harder to obtain. But it's, it's way less than the 6300 kcal, top of the line spec, on an energy basis, on the dollars per gigajoule. It's probably only about a third of the price. Uh, and so when you look at that number and look at the proposed price cap, it really isn't going to affect the electricity price very much, in my opinion. Now, this is a bit of a long burst. The, the gas price probably won't have that much impact in the short term because as every energy analyst from, from here to tomorrow has said, most of the gas for the current next 12 months is already contracted. The thing that everyone objects to, uh, include well many people, and particularly I object to it along with people I would not normally support, uh, is this idea that the government can sort of set a reasonable return for the gas uh, people into perpetuity. That you know, to be gross about it is not very far away from full-on socialism or communism. The idea that the market can't be accepted as setting prices, the markets don't work, only governments know what is the uh, right price to set for something. We, 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 I did an interview, which we'll get to one of these days, um, about lithium pricing, which has gone up from like uh, uh, $15,000 a tonne to fifty or sixty thousand dollars a ton, and that's greatly to Australia's benefit. But you can't have governments around the world just telling all these lithium producers that they can't have a high price because it doesn't suit car makers. It's really not the government's job to be setting prices in contestable markets. And it's one thing to do it in gas in the short term, and you can say this and that, and it's another thing altogether. It's the signal that it does send to people about what the government will do in any market when it doesn't like the result at sea. It's no different to the Liberal government wanting to uh, tell AGL power station to stay open. It's <laughs> this is a bit of a long burst, uh, but but it it does make me very unhappy philosophically, Giles. No, I get that, and I hear that. Um, what should they have done? A windfall tax, a super profits tax, and in given the um, the feedback, I mean, just looking at Norway and some of the extra money that it's managed to pull in um, over the last twelve months, um, it would have been fantastic for Australia's budget and its investment in the future um, if it had that sort of money. And I really can't understand why, apart from acknowledging that um, when Labor proposed a mining tax all those years ago, um, they ran a million miles as soon as the mining lobby threatened them. But um, seems to me that the mining and the petroleum lobby are making just as much of a noise at the moment, um, you know, screaming blackouts and no further investment, which is exactly what the IEA actually says we, we need to get to 1.5 degrees. Um, so I'm just wondering if, you know, to a certain degree that the way the gas industry has responded to this, they're kind of shitting in their own, own nest anyway, if you excuse the language, um, mainly because we've seen as, you know, the Greens have done this deal with Labor now, so we're saying, well, okay, well, let's accelerate the exit. Let's kick gas out of the household. Let's kick their appliances out and accelerate that part, which is not a bad idea at all. Um, 
No, I agree with getting... Uh, but the point is the high gas prices, at least in my mind, uh, would have encouraged people to switch. Now, if you... Uh, you know, although the, there are two other points I want to make, uh, general points, and because most of the complaining about high gas prices comes from businesses and the um, households already face, they don't notice it as much because most of the price that a gas household pays for the hot water or whatever is in the wires and poles. It's like about 70% of the price or something like there. So it's really the percentage change is not that much or as much. But for businesses, it is a bigger deal. But most, but in general still, gas is actually not a really big component as a general statement of the final price of most of the products. So, you know, it doesn't really alter the cost structure for many things all that much. And secondly, for most of the people, businesses that use it, and I'm thinking of like bakeries and brickworks and stuff like that, uh, they all use gas. And so if the, one of them puts their costs up, uh, prices up because of higher costs, then they will all be doing it. And so there's not any necessarily that much change in the competitive position. I don't want to overstate those arguments. The, the main thing is if the gas price stays very high, electrification will happen more quickly. If you artificially lower the gas price, then um, uh, electrification won't happen and you're relying on the supply sector uh, to just not produce any more gas, and which really just makes the uh, problem, uh, you, you know, that you're trying to solve with price caps persist indefinitely. Yes, look, it's an interesting argument, one that we can continue on for a while. I mean, I guess there's the political side of it, wondering, well, how long can you actually see gas prices go up? And, you know, can in, in this age of sort of social media and, um, and everyone believing in sort of all sorts of different theories, how long can you actually sort of hold the line in that rhetoric that, you know, well, more renewables will bring the prices down if you're seeing the fossil fuel um, fossil fuels shifting the prices up? And I guess, you know, people start thinking of electoral cycles and things like that. So, um, well, the trouble is, Giles... It is interesting, and we could talk about it. It is important to talk about, though. Um, you know, the, the response is not instantaneous. You can't build a new wind, and, any more than uh, Germany can build a new wind and solar farm in five minutes. It takes time to get this stuff done. And you, you have to put up with so at the higher prices for a while and give them time to work. But they do work. They do work. Yeah. And that, well, that's interesting, the, actually. Yes, well, we've seen that in Germany. I mean, they've actually gone from like an 80-20% um, reliance on Russian um, gas um, to making it 20-80%. It's, um, I mean, they've just completely just sort of turned that on its head um, in just six months, which is shows what can be done with a, um, a bit of application. Mind you, they're paying for it, but um, um, they will get the benefits from that um, over time. Um, David, I just want to clarify one thing about the coal part of it, though, because what you thought, said I, I thought was interesting, but I just want to clarify exactly what it meant, because um, there's all these stories and we don't know yet because we haven't seen the modelling, but this idea that might be half a billion dollars and maybe it might, most of that will go to New South Wales and will probably go to Mount Piper and Araring, who have the most trouble actually finding coal and having to buy it on the spot price or things like that. I mean, the fact that the, these prices and contracts are just so, um, well, there's such, such little clarity around them. I'm just, I'm just wondering, um, are you saying, firstly that the cost might not be as much as anyone feared and two is there a risk that this could be watered in some way because no one actually does know what the cost of this damn coal is anyway well we don't i don't i don't i mean the only public various people have various opinions what the coal uh, price actually is 
Um, uh, and so that has to be... Um, but the, the details, obviously, the, the Gentilers don't make um, the details of their coal contracts all that public unless they're really good. So obviously when AGL bought Bayswater, it talked a lot about how wonderful its coal contracts were because they were less than the rest of the market. And they still have some of those contracts. And one of the reasons why they closed Liddell early is to take advantage of their cheap coal and put it through their other uh, generator in New South Wales, Bayswater. Um, 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 Vales Point uh, owns a coal mine, uh, which supplies some of its uh, coal. It used to be a very uneconomic coal mine. It goes out under um, uh, Lake Macquarie or whatever it is there. It probably goes halfway out to the ocean by now. Um, but that's and that's some of their coal. Um, and Mount Piper gets its coal, it gets its coal from inland, and it's really doesn't have many coal mines that can supply it unless they truck it in. I don't know whether this coal price cap is the X mine price, the washed price, the delivered price. You know, you know what specification of coal it refers to. It's all a bit uh, iffy for me, but so actually what the impact will be and who will benefit, um, uh, uh, I've yet to see. But uh, you, you can work out that the price they're talking about, the, the implied marg short-run marginal cost of electricity is, is less than $100 using that coal price. Hmm. Okay. Um, maybe just one final thing, um, Waratah Battery. Just an interesting report came out with Australian Energy Regulator this week. Um, it sounded like they really wanted to reveal the contract price, how much Acacia Energy, um, which is now owned by BlackRock um, and which has grand plans for big batteries in Australia, hasn't actually built one yet and has landed the contract for the most powerful battery in the world, the Waratah Super Battery, this sort of kind of massive shock absorber, which will sort of allow more electricity to be um, sent through into the Sydney and Illawarra and Hunter Load Centres uh, once the rowing has gone. Um, one suspects that the value of this contract might be about a half a billion dollars, but it's been kept secret, at least for the moment, under sort of, you know, commercial sort of sensitivities and things like that. I mean, I guess that's another question. You know, we, we know what the price was for the Victorian big battery pretty much as soon as it was actually announced. We know what the price was for the Hornsdale big battery almost as soon as it was announced. I think it did take a couple of months to get out. I mean, should we know any quicker about how much taxpayers or consumers or whoever it is is going to be paying for it is actually paying for the Waratah Super Battery? Uh, I don't have a real view about that, Giles. I'm always in favour of more disclosure, but uh, we don't know anything about the contract. And sometimes the headline numbers, not really the full story anyway. Um, they've still got to actually build the battery and make sure it can be fit in at its cost, if you see what I mean. And for all I know, there's some revenue component in there related to the actual cost as opposed to the quoted cost. So so I wouldn't have any uh, comment on that, particularly, Giles. But I think yeah. we mentioned... That's okay. Off you go. Yep. I think we mentioned up front, you know, and I'm I'm very big on the international developments and we've done a couple of podcasts this year looking at the... Um, recently looking at the... Inflation Reduction Act in the United States and how what a really big deal that is. And similarly, we did a, a bit of a podcast a week or two before that with Matthias Buck from uh, Agora Energy when, uh, in uh, Europe uh, about the very big and complex uh, Fit for 55 legislation, decarbonisation in Europe. And he said on that podcast that the um, carbon border tax uh, would be in place by Christmas, and I was going to say Christmas, uh, you know, 2023, but <laughs> I didn't say that. And just as well, because it is indeed this Christmas, 
and it starts as just a reporting obligation for a couple of years but nevertheless in place before it actually gets to be a hard number and there are some big implications from that not so much for Australia in direct exports but really because in Europe now uh, things like steel and aluminium will end up having to pay a carbon price because the stuff that's imported uh, will, will be effectively bearing a carbon price because of that carbon tax. And what that will do is provide all this incentivization for hydrogen and other new technologies to decarbonise the steel and aluminium sector. And I think I saw an article somewhere that, that there are a lot of plans on the drawing boards already for new steelworks that uh, are decarbonised. So, you know, all of the things, that, and that will change the iron ore outlook in Australia. What sort of iron ores are suitable? So there's a lot going on in, 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 that affects Australia internationally, and, uh, and it's for the good in the long run, but it may well end up being for the negative in the short run because of the trade barriers. Very good, David. Well, look, thank you. I think that's probably a bit of a wrap for this week. It's getting close to Christmas. People have got things to do. Um, they can't spend the whole shopping trip um, listening to this podcast, and I might wrap up there. Um, thanks to Merrin York from AYEMO for joining us and talking about the 100% Renewables Engineering Roadmap. Um, thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen. Evergen, thanks to you, David. I hope you enjoy the, no, everyone enjoys the World Cup final on Sunday and we'll be back next week for the last podcast for 2022 before a month long break or so and um, bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.